Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to the second episode in this series, a conversation between myself and Tanya White. Um, the big question, big question of suffering, of evil, of how we deal with that, what kind of responses we have seen throughout Jewish history, and what responses can be relevant to us in our in our modern life. If you're listening in now and you haven't heard the first episode, we strongly suggest going back and listening to that first. This conversation will be built directly on the first episode. In our previous conversation, we spoke about different measure-for-measure theologies or sin-and-punishment theologies that present themselves in biblical literature. Uh, And we saw that while this is definitely a prevalent theology, there are there are certain nuances that surface even in the biblical texts, particularly in Sefer Eov, perhaps also in uh, in Megillat Echa, and we had also explored the story of Cain and Hevel in Sefer Breshit. And there are definitely nuances and responses that exist in biblical texts. Today we wanted to speak about a number of responses to suffering, to difficulty, to pain in a particular rabbinic text and also a rabbinic text from the medieval period uh, and see what theologies sort of have been offered throughout the ages but that we think might also be helpful and relevant uh, for us today as moderns living in the world that we're in. That's right, Yosef, and we left off last week discussing the idea or the difference between an answer and a response. We spoke about the fact that whilst an answer offers a closed kind of almost um, very specific answer to a certain question, it doesn't allow for organic growth, whereas a response um, is more um, dynamic at different times, different responses will speak to me. I happen to start upon the following quote by Elie Wiesel, which I think really is pertinent to the discussion that we had um, in a book called Witness by his um, student and protege, Ariel Berger. He talks about a conversation he had with Elie Wiesel and Berger says to Elie Wiesel as follows. I have so many questions, I replied, and the rabbis in yeshiva give so many answers. But when I hear the answers, My questions only feel heavier than before. Again, this reminded me of what we spoke about last week, this litmus test of does an answer or response make my suffering worse or does it make my suffering better? And then Berger continues. He looked at me for a long moment in silence. Then he said, you are sincere. I can see that. And these questions come from your sincerity, your seriousness. We all ask questions and we should. It is more dangerous if we do not. But perhaps you are not looking for answers. You are looking for responses to your questions, to your life, for ways to live rather than ideas to espouse. Answers close things down. Responses do not. I thought this was really beautiful way of understanding what we're trying to do in this podcast, which is on the one hand, of course, we're looking to tradition. We're trying to grapple with the notion of the problem of evil. But what we're trying to see is perhaps less answers and more responses. Perhaps the idea of existentially, how do we live 
with the problem of evil, with suffering, rather than offering a closed answer that may be able to solve that particular problem at that particular time, but on a long-term level, doesn't really allow us for cathartic movement. Unfortunately, this week, we've had some um, very close-to-home tragedies. Um, Rabbanit Malkabina, the dean of Matan, tragically lost her son, Moshe, to cancer. Um, and last night, a bus with B'nai Kiba children on their way home from Masa Sukkot, from their Sukkot Tiol, um, crashed um, and killed, unfortunately, some people and maimed many others. And I mean, my, my children themselves had been on this Masa. Um, thank God they weren't on that particular bus. But it really, when tragedies like this and many other tragedies strike us, it's very hard for us to accept absolute and closed answers. In a sense, what I, I feel, and I feel this all the time, that suffering almost pulls us, draws us constantly back to the questions. Um, and maybe, Yosef, I don't know, but maybe there's an element of having to be comfortable with living in the tension. Um, maybe we, are, we, sh- we should eschew those closed answers to a degree and say, you know what, we have to live in that oscillation, um, that oscillation of different positions of different responses. So again, today, we're going to we're going to look at the idea of illness. Um, That's the theme of today's podcast. And for many, that's going to be a very personal and deeply painful topic. Yosef and I have both had, unfortunately, parents that have gone through illnesses and we ourselves have gone through various things. And it's not a topic that... um, has one answer for every person. It's a topic that must demand various responses. So today we're going to offer two particular perspectives from tradition, and we're going to discuss how we personally relate to them. I want to begin, um, Yosefa, do you have anything to add at this point or should I jump straight in? I think that the, what you said is correct, that we don't want, we don't really want answers. I mean, even when people ask, um, as a teacher, when students come to me with a question, I think maybe a few decades ago, a teacher would feel like they had to have the answer for their student. Even when a student comes to me with something rather small, not talking about an evil or suffering, uh, I, I always try and respond from a place of response and not answer. I just think that it's, I think that it's a healthier way of functioning. I think that, um, cause we also never know what we're, if what we're going to say is going to speak to the person that we're speaking to. Um, it's just, it's, I think, I think it's a healthier way of communicating with humans. And certainly when it comes to things that are, that are as heavy and difficult as the topics that we're, that we're addressing right now. I'll also say that and we mentioned this, I, I believe, in the previous conversation. But many times when people are looking for, they have questions and they're coming up and they're trying to engage, very often what they really need, and I know we're going to get into really real particulars today, but very often what they really need is just for the person to bear witness to what they've experienced. Um, that's an idea also that I've I've learned from 
life and also from from David Kessler, who's a name that will come up again in future conversations, that very often, even when people, it seems like they're asking a question, what they really, really need us to do is to just sit with them and near them in that difficulty and not, don't silver line it, don't put a, you know, a nice sticker at the end, don't try and tie it up with a bow, but just be with them and, and bear witness to the difficulty that they're experiencing. Right. Uh, and so again, I want to remind us that of the responses that we're speaking about today, I think that it's really important that if it, it if these ideas come up in conversation with someone, that they only come up in conversation when someone is genuinely looking for that response. And I would say an even healthier way for those of us who are on a journey and looking for these responses for ourselves. I think that again, a person of authority or a friend or the person who was on the other side of the suffering always needs to be really careful to not offer these, oh, by the way, you know, the Gemara says this or the Rambam says this. We have to be really, really careful to only offer those ideas if someone is genuinely looking for them. And I think much more healthily is for the person going through it to become exposed to these ideas on their own. And then they could decide for themselves. We'll go back to that litmus test, that litmus test idea. They decide for themselves whether or not it's something that, that offers them comfort. hundred percent. I think it goes back to what we, what you spoke about last week, which was the idea of holding, um, that we need to, to have holding space. Um, the idea of hamakom yenachem otchem that really we say God should comfort you, but the the fact that he's called God is hamakom is the space, right? Is that's particularly the word that we use when we try to comfort someone because that's exactly what that person needs. They just need that holding space, and that space allows for repair. It allows for them to get through this, their or get through. I don't think it's the right word, but to to allow them to move through um, the various stages of grief and suffering and, and, and illness and illness as well. Um, so I think we're going to go straight into the Gemara. Yeah, no, I just want to say that also by way of introduction to the, to the Gemara, which really is um, in many ways mimics what we saw in Eov. Uh, where Eov, you have, you know, a series of friends who are all offering a different response. And you have by way of the really subtle way of the Gemara, where you have also a series of responses to this question. How could it be that bad things happen to people in circumstances where it's supposed to be good? And you'll, you'll explain the details. Yeah. So the Gemara really goes through different options. How are ways, how do we deal with that, right? In this case, it might be a theoretical conundrum in the way that the Gemara does, but we really want to take it to the practical. So you can take it away, Tanya. Okay, so let me just frame the Gemara for us. It begins with this dilemma. Um, the Torah offers us two mitzvot for which we receive long life. The first mitzvah is the kibbutz of the M, for which we're told we should have arichat yamim, we're going to have long life. And the second mitzvah is shiloh haken, where we send, we we send away the mother bird in order to take her eggs. For both of these mitzvot, um, we're told that we will have, um, our, our days will be extended. And then we have this, whether it's a theoretical situation or an actual situation, the Gemara itself debates this. We have this situation, and, and I want us just to imagine for a minute what we're seeing. So we see this sweet young child who's gentle and very kind, and he's being asked by his father to climb up a tree and shoo away the mother bird and bring his father the eggs. Okay, And as we know, both of these, he's fulfilling two mitzvot, two commandments for which he's meant to receive long life. 
um, honoring his father and showing away the mother birth. So this sweet child, wanting to please his father and piously fulfill the Torah commandment, fall, goes up the trees and chews away the mother bird. And tragically, he falls from the tree and he dies. And then we have the Gemara come and try and explain. And again, here I'm really, we're saying when we talk about answers and responses, the Gemara is trying to bring answers to how this nonsensical tragedy occurred and why or how it could occur in our world. So we have one opinion that says, could it be that the child was harboring sinful thoughts and was being punished? Okay. And then someone else comes saying, but even if he was harboring sinful thoughts, we know that God protects those on their way to do a mitzvah. And then a third person says, no, but um, his reward for the mitzvah is perhaps in the world to come. Maybe it's not even this in this world. And then another person says, well, maybe um, you're protected on the way to doing a mitzvah, but not on the way back from doing mitzvah. And finally, a fourth person says, no, you are protected on the way back from doing a mitzvah. And then finally, there's a very, very interesting opinion. A fifth person comes along and he says that this was Sulam Ra'ua. It was a broken ladder, a, a, a rickety ladder, a ladder that was unstable. And because of that, the child fell. In other words, you're all wrong. There's no metaphysical um, debate here. The debate is totally naturalistic. We live in the world, the natural way of the world, that if is, if there is a broken ladder, the danger is fixed. And that's exactly what the Gemara says. There was a fixed danger. And where the danger is fixed or established, one cannot rely on a miracle. That's the exact words of the Gemara. And the father, in other words, should have checked the ladder and never sent. I mean, the Gemara doesn't say this, but by way of um, intuit, uh, uh, by way of um, um, uh, what comes out from the Gemara is that the father should have checked the ladder and never sent his child up, relying on God to protect him. Okay? Now, again, these all of what, what the Gemara is doing here is offering us a plethora of different responses and each of these responses is 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 debated by the rabbis in the Gemara saying is it true is it not true but I think one of the things that we see throughout here is or, or perhaps I should say one of the things that I think about when I when I read this Gemara is I imagine these people sitting at the shiva with this father and I imagine the father listening to them and saying does this offer me any comfort what what comfort do any of these responses offer the grief-stricken father? Now, again, it, it also it took me back to a tragedy that we had this year, which was um, the tragedy in Meron, where we had this terrible, terrible event, right, where, hunt, where tens of people died. And we asked the question afterwards, you know, why, has, why does such a tragedy happen? So you, of course, again, have these voices that are coming out saying, you know, maybe it was a punishment or God wanted it to happen. It was meant to be this way. And then you have the other more naturalistic voices coming out and saying um, people should be held up, held guilty and we need to respond and we need to find who is responsible for such a terrible tragedy and such a terrible thing. You know, was the danger in the words of the Gemara established? Was it fixed? Or, you know, or is it just this was how it was meant to be? God wanted it. It's God's plan. So again, I, I think all of these things are particularly important, but the particular one I wanted to look at was this idea of not relying on a miracle and the way of the world. Okay? If we talk about, when we, we talk about illness, for example, right, could we turn around and we could say, well, that person got cancer because they smoked all their life, or that person died in a terrible car accident because they were a bad driver, right, or they walked out onto the road without looking. 
Okay, these are all what we would call the Gemara would call, for example, um, established dangers, fixed dangers. There's nothing we can do about it. It's not some metaphysical plan, right? It's not something that we can turn around and blame God. In fact, it's not blaming anyone. It's just the way of the world. Now, what we can do is we can assess it and say, should I have taken more responsibility? Should this person have taken more responsibility? Okay. Or should I have led a healthier lifestyle? Or should I have taught my child to cross the road properly? Or should I have um, not driven in such a, um, uh, a dangerous way, right? There's many different things that we can ask and many different things we can say. But I think what uh, the Gemara tries to do in the way perhaps that only an ancient text can, right? It's not in our modern theological language, but it's channeling us to some kind of tikkun. And again, not a tikkun. And this is why I love this Gemara, because it's not your classic tikkun of theological platitudes, right? Um, or, or, or saying, you know, oh, it was meant to be, or, or God's punishing us, or what we were talking about last week yourself, right? Sin of the classic refrain of sin and punishment. But it's actually asking us to look at the world as it is here and saying, how can we prevent another case of unnecessary suffering? So again, it's less about the why, right? And blaming and shaming, which we said was those two natural inclinations of human beings to blame, to shame, to search for certain answers. The Gemara, in a sense, by offering us the rickety ladder explanation, is moving out of the why zone and moving more to the what zone. What can we do to prevent the next tragedy occurring? Wait, so I also want to add a few points onto that, which is that... What I also love about this Gemara, which, by the way, is in Kiddushin, uh, Daf Lamed Tet through Mem, yes, which sorry, we didn't say before. Um, yeah. What I also love about this Gemara is that it shows how much Chazal themselves are pulling at straws, meaning they themselves, with all of their wisdom and the authority that they have, look at the world and say, huh. How, how do we deal with that, right? How do we how do we process that? And you see that, I, I love that by all the answers given, right? When so many answers are given, it's a sign that there is no one answer. There are just different responses and perhaps a, a combination of all of them will be necessary. But I also want to turn our attention to the last two lines of that particular sugiya, which is uh, which says as follows. It says, okay, that it is one of the many sugiot that deal with uh, Elisha ben Abuya and his leaving Derech HaTorah, uh, his leaving uh, a religious lifestyle. And it says that what was what was the reason that that Elisha ben Abuya, who's who's named Acher, left the way of Torah? There are those that say it's because he saw things like this. Which, again, I look at this Gemara, as you do, as a prototype. It's a prototype for so many of us to come afterwards. And while Elisha ben Abuya and why he leaves the world of Torah and the different way that that's presented in the Chazal deserves its own podcast, I love that in this piece, we have this idea of the suffering, the internal theological moral suffering that people feel just by witnessing other people's suffering. I Meaning... 
the Gemara doesn't say, oh, well, there was a Misorah that this was his child, right? Meaning it wasn't even that it was his child. It was that he, as someone on the side, was looking at God's world and saying, I don't know that I can live in a world like this and still, and still fulfill mitzvot and still live a lifestyle that is so, um, that is so devout. And so I also love that the Gemara brings in the sort of the outsider, quote unquote, perspective of how people, you know, can look around the world and say, this doesn't make sense to me. I, I'm feeling I'm feeling lost in this, uh, in the depth of these kinds of tragedies. Right. So, so your sefer it's a promo for perhaps our next podcast, which is going to look at the Holocaust. And if we look at many of the Holocaust theologians, a lot of them are actually people that didn't go through the Holocaust. For example, Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Um, in nine, he was he really knew very little about the Holocaust, even though his aunts and uncles had gone through it. His parents never discussed that. And in 1961, he comes to Israel, and all of a sudden, he's faced. He sits in Yad Vashem, and he's faced with the sheer enormity of the event, and it causes an absolute existential crisis for him, and a theological crisis. And I think that's exactly what you're saying: that the witnessing the cognitive dissonance, what we spoke about last time, between the world as it is, or or I should say the world as we imagine it to be, or the theological constructs as we have believed in for for our whole life, and then all of a sudden witnessing something that totally contradicts perhaps those theological constructs. How do we live with that dissonance? How do we try and in some ways morph that reality of what is and what is what ought to be into one and can it even be morphed into one meaning can we even reconcile that cognitive dissonance for Alicia Benaboya we know that he really he can't and that leads him to um to leave the fold of um religious life even though he never truly does because he keeps coming back all the time to Rabbi Meir and we see that he kind of doesn't that there is something still draws him back to to tradition to to his old life but that he's used exactly as you said as a prototype, and this is what the Gemara, or one of the reasons the Gemara tells us he leaves the fold because exactly he witnesses this terrible incident, um, as well as some other terrible things and terrible sufferings. I, I want to go back to what you said before regarding where this Gemara takes us, and then I think we'll we'll move forward to our next source. Yeah, which is that the Gemara here already starts moving away from the why. Um, because it's a dangerous question. Uh, I think, I mean, that's me adding in my own explanation. Uh, and it moves towards this place of, we also have to realize that as humans, we're contending with the human world. And in a human world, things like this will happen. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the theology is rickety, and sometimes it's that the physicality of the world is rickety, and that is what leads to to certain catastrophes. Um, what it does, though, Tanya, is that it the idea of sulam ra'ua pushes somebody a little bit away from from getting to the theological point. Meaning, it sort of says you don't need to go there, which I think ha- might have its advantages and disadvantages, which we'll discuss in a minute. But it pushes somebody away from 
maybe he wasn't doing the right mitzvah, maybe he had thoughts of Avodah Zarah, meaning it, it sort of says, maybe we don't need to go to that place right now when we can just look at it as as a as a natural disaster right. um, for, with all that word means. So you said um, perhaps they move away from the why because it's dangerous. So I think it's more less dangerous, um, perhaps certainly in the ancient times, I think it was less nowadays, perhaps more, but I think it's more the fact that there's just, there isn't an answer honestly, right? There's no one answer. Like even if you say sin and punishment, but this incident goes against what the Torah on face value tells us we're going to have long life for. So how can we even add that up? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical. So I think it's, it's so much so that the, there's no answer to the why question. And therefore we move to the, exactly as you said, and I love that what you said, I think it's, it's, particularly it's a a great way of looking at it the rickety ladder moves us away from the rickety ladder of theology towards the rickety ladder of of life of existence of existence of of life of 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 reality right um and that's it's what we would term like a naturalistic or or causative um explanation rather than a theological or metaphysical explanation So on that note, I want to bring us to our next source. And I want to say also personally that this was a source, um, the Rambam in Marina Vuchim, that when I, when I first read it, it, it actually brought me a lot of comfort. And um, we'll speak about the limits of what the Rambam has to offer here. But, um, I come from a really illustrious history of family illness. Um, and, and I just, sort of grew up and grew of age in a world that made me very wary of that and made me feel very much that this this was my this is my inheritance right this is going to be my future unless i take very very serious precautions um which have no guarantee and i really i really appreciated the rambam's perspective here and i of course loved also that it's from the Rambam and so long ago. So the Rambam and Moranavuchim speaks about what he calls three kinds of evil. I'm going to read a paraphrase of the Rambam. It's much longer. Um, and uh, we'll put, we'll have a attached source sheet, by the way, for anybody who wants to have uh, on, on the website. And so this is from Moranavuchim, Chelek Gimel, in the third section, in uh, subsection 12. The first kind of evil is that which is caused to man by virtue of the fact that he's subject to genesis and destruction, or that he possesses a body. It's on account of the body that some persons happen to have great deformities or paralysis. And uh, we have already shown that in accordance with the divine wisdom, genesis can only take place through destruction, and without the destruction of the individual members of the species, the species themselves would not exist permanently. And here this is a very big paraphrase, but he basically says that we are made of matter. Uh, we are made of matter, and therefore we will uh, we can decompose, and we can break down, and we can also be born with deformities because we're made of matter. And so he says that 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 which he says is the smallest amount of of evil or suffering in the world is that which we can attribute to the fact that we're we're simply human, and in order for the species to continue and exist, people need to die, and others need to be born. 
Um, the second class of evil comprises such evils that people cause to each other when some of them use their strength against others. And these evils are more numerous than those of the first kind. And in the second class of evils, the Rambam would include things like war, uh, which is that these are things that we cause to each other. You don't need to blame. You don't need to look for God in causes of war. You need to look at the way that humans are treating each other, for example. And he says that while these are more numerous than the first kind, he says in the continuation of that paragraph that there's still the far minority. And I love that sentence because the Ramam is living in the 11th century uh, and, and he is living in a time where war is far more common than it is now. And he still says, even if it feels like there's a lot of war, it's still the vast minority of the amount of people that are being killed in war on, on any regular basis. Yeah, Yosef, I'm going to stop you there. Besides the fact that it that may be more common, but the scale was far less than it was, especially if we're talking about the Holocaust and, yes. and genocides that happened in the 21st century. I think, you know, we would ask maybe would the Rambam have changed his opinion now? I mean, it's just a question to throw out there, but I think it's worth, worth worth thinking about. Yeah, interest that's a great point, Tanya. I also would say though that the Raman was a big fan of perspective. He writes uh in a different uh, letter. He says that whenever people are feeling sad that their lot is is really negative and full of bad things. He said it's always good to just take a step back and get a little bit of perspective and to look at the fact that in relation to the world, we don't have a monopoly on evil and suffering, meaning the individual doesn't have a monopoly. And I want to say that while, again, that's not a, re- a response I would ever share with anybody in current moments of suffering, I do believe in here, I'm totally speaking from a personal space, that over time, that is a perspective that can be gained, meaning when we're in a moment of suffering, it's so all-encompassing, we could barely see beyond it, if at all. Right. And we're literally swimming in it. But then time passes, and you're able, time heals a bit, or at least creates space. It and then you can you can take a step back and see what that for what it was. And that while it was, it doesn't need to minimize what was and how you felt it then. But over time, often our perspective can change. And so the Rambam also writes that elsewhere. But I'll go on to the third, the third class. Um, comprises those which everyone causes to himself by his own action. This is the largest class and is far more numerous than the second class. It is especially of these evils that all men complain. It originates in man's vices, such as excessive desire for eating, drinking, and love, indulgence in these things in undue measure or in improper manner or partaking of bad food. This brings disease and affliction upon body and soul alike. Uh, when they thus meet with the consequences of the course which they adopt, they complain of the decrees and judgment of God. And this this piece really uh, speaks to me very much because I think that over time it's become even more relevant. The Ramam says everybody has to be real about how they mistreat the own vessel in which they have been able to occupy, right? Whether it's with improper eating, improper behaviors, um, vices, uh, here he sticks in a somewhat negative perspective on uh, on relationship with uh, with our sexual selves, but we'll leave it on the side for now. Um, but he says that m- most of the the suffering that we experience is a suffering that we bring upon ourselves. Uh, and I would put in here, by the way, um, that I think the Ramam really really predated uh, a lot of what we know now of how much 
how much disease is caused by food, how food can heal the body, uh, and how, and the Ramam says, just be really, really careful before you blame God for things that you yourself caused. Um, now, does that answer every illness? Do people get an illness that seems to be completely, you know, out of left field? You know, the Rambam wasn't yet familiar with uh, childhood trauma and its relationship with uh, with disease that can come later on or people's propensity to to adopt certain behaviors that are harmful or diseases. But I think the Rambam here gives us a, a lot of food for thought. And he says that just think really hard before you turn back to God and say, what did you give me on my plate? Um, which doesn't obviate all questions that people have. But I think that it's an important distiller that can be added in at times um, to to this to the sort of pot of questions that people have. Okay, so Yosefa, two things I think are important saying. Firstly, I just want to summarize what you've done very briefly. So we've said that the Rambam brings three, he explains, explains suffering or evil in three different ways. One, we're made of matter. Matter decays, that's the natural way of the world. Okay, number two, evils, uh, evil can happen or evil does happen when humans do it to each other. Okay, classic example, kind and Heather, we spoke about it. And the third is that vices lead to suffering. Okay, so nowadays we would maybe talk about addictions. We talk about overeating. We talk about all the various um, maladies that human beings cause to themselves um, that lead to illness, to suffering, et cetera, et cetera. And that, by the way, we could talk about also traffic accidents today and, and all those various other categories that we could fit it into. But one of the things that I'm seeing here now, I know you said that this speak, that Rambam speaks to um, in a very deep way. I think there's two things we need to point out here. Number one, it, it follows as a corollary, so to speak, to the Gemara where we spoke about the idea of the rickety ladder, the idea of causation and natural causation in the world, the idea of not relying on, on a miracle, okay? But the way that I see it is that we're still, with the Rambam, we're still sitting in the zone of blame, okay? Because essentially, yes, what, I, we're, yes. essentially what we're saying is, we're saying instead of blaming God, which, which is, you know, the classic sin and punishment refrain, or the sin and punishment refrain, sorry, would be we're blaming man, right? God, God is punishing for our sins. But instead of taking that out the equation and saying, let's not look at it from a metaphysical perspective, we're looking at it from a very naturalistic perspective. We're still blaming man for his suffering okay, we're still saying uh it's the way we're made up there's nothing we can do about it we do evil to each other that causes war we have vices that we don't have control over and therefore these terrible things happen to us and i, I i'm just asking yourself from your perspective because you you particularly said that this speaks to you what is it about this source what is it about the rambam that allows you to sit in that place of illness of suffering of being able or, or i should say what is it about the rambam's response that speaks to you that that's what i'm kind of going to where i'm going to yeah i the part that speaks to me is particularly the third part because i definitely ascribe to a much more um for a long time to a much more holistic perspective on body and and understanding how we treat it or what it goes through will have echoes and reverberations uh, later on and because I think I just find that sometimes people experience illness, whether firsthand or from a family member, and and they 
and they start asking these questions about what had happened to them, you know, were they living a life of sin or all these questions that we may, we may verbalize or even just think inside of ourselves. And I think the Rambam reaffirms my internal, my internal space, which says those questions are really unnecessary. Um, they're not necessary questions. We might not always be able to trace the exact development of of disease, but I do think that when people look at their own role and how their body is responding to life, that often they can that puts them onto a journey of real healing. Um, and that when if we, I think obviously people can do both, but I'm just saying that I I do I do ascribe to much more of a. I, I own up to my own role in my own health. And so the Rambam speaks to me in that regard as well. Uh, and that it doesn't mean that therefore when somebody else goes through something, I point my finger and say, oh, that happened to them because of that. But I do feel that that for me, it, it fits into my, into my worldview uh, a lot more than, than other answers. And I also just feel that I much more find myself in the scale of the meaning question. So, okay, what do I do with this now? And that's a personality thing. It's also a family culture of how I grew up. But for some people, the theological question really sits with them. And for me, the Ramam gives me a nice ladder, uh, a ladder, a nice uh, bridge. Segway. A segue <laughs> into a place that you, you don't have to ask that question. On the other hand, Tanya, I recognize that it also pushes God out of the picture. Yeah, so I was going to, that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm saying, what happens to providence in the Rambam's view? And, and I think this is a question, you know, we unfortunately we don't have, we, we're limited in time in these podcasts and we don't have time to really look at the Rambam and his whole view on providence, which is um, super interesting. Um, and the Rambam himself will admit that at, at a basic level, there's a limited providence on the human being. Um, providence happens when one um, hasn't, you know, gets to the highest level of active intellect, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, on this basic level, or certainly according to this explanation, it seems to do, it seems to be that we've pushed the divine out the picture to a degree. Um, and so I ask you at this point, what happens to that comforting God? What happens to the idea of, um, you know, this is happening to me for a reason? Um, what happens to all of those? No, it does. It, it throws it throws those those pieces out of the water. And I and I will say that for those who their theology is much more naturalistic, the Rambam will sit better. And for those who who are looking for a much warmer um, or or experience God as much closer and warmer, I don't think the Rambam will be all that comforting for them. Um, and I agree that if I could just speak personally, that, that that that's a struggle. It's a struggle to find God then in these in these places because because he essentially gets removed. He gets removed and replaced by a very naturalistic perspective. So I recognize that that is the biggest limit of the Rambam. Uh, it's the biggest limit. And for those who it buttresses their already existing theology, then great. And for those who they just feel lonely when they read the Rambam, so the Rambam won't be a good response for them. So what we spoke about last time, the idea of suffering, that one of the greatest, perhaps perhaps I, I would even say the greatest um the greatest malady of suffering is the notion of loneliness, because when we 
Laura Lenu, if we have a terrible illness or even a terminal illness or even a chronic illness, I think often we forget that chronic illnesses um, have so much, are, are, are kind of infused with so much suffering on a day-to-day basis. It's not acute, right? It's not like a cancer and it's not like, but there's plenty, plenty of people that suffer endlessly with chronic illnesses. And you know, when we speak about that very often, and especially in the chronic illness zone, um, there's a sense of loneliness. No one understands what I'm going through. No one really empathizes and no one gets they it. They can't really, and I, often and they I'm can't low. see it. There are invisible and, illnesses. And here, by the way, we're talking about mental illnesses for sure. Mental illnesses, which are really invisible illnesses and mental illness today, unfortunately, is a, is is really a very, very um, prevalent, uh, prevalent. Right. It's a very prevalent illness today, especially in the hills of Corona and all the various things that we've been going through over the last two years. Um, Again, it's a hidden illness and it's an illness that a lot of people hide and it is infused with loneliness. And I think that one of the things we have to ask is that in that lonely state, at that lonely moment, perhaps the one person that we can reach out to is God. But if we've taken him out of the picture, if we believe that he isn't perhaps even sometimes maybe even helps to say God has caused this or this is happening to me for a reason. Right. Um, what happens when we take him out and we we you know, it's all just about cause and effect or natural cause and effect. Then we've lost that protector in a sense we've lost that person who's with us in our suffering so tanya i want to ask is is there a way to bring it together is there a way to synthesize them that's exactly what i was going to say does it have to be um does it have to be one or the other okay so let me just let me just very briefly pose dilemma the dilemma is that if um, we explain everything naturally, then we've kind of lost that providential, that classic traditional providential God to a degree, right? Because we we're saying, well, it's all natural causes. One, I'm saying it's all nat- it's all all it, it really. He, he's actually just putting man at the center and taking God out the center of all of our illness and suffering. On the other hand, if we say if we create God into this very personal, very providential God, then what about evil and suffering? Right. Does God allow for evil and suffering? Does that make his perfect stature? Is his perfect stature diminished in one way or another? Um, Is he no longer that um, the all loving, all, you know, um, omni benevolent God that we once believed him to be? So we have this dilemma. And the question is, can we. Can we. Is there a way of reconciling these two opinions, these two extreme ways or, or you know, extreme um, perspectives on suffering and evil? So for me personally, and here again, I'll speak from a very personal level. I don't think it has to be one or the other, meaning on the one hand, we know that we live in a very naturalistic universe. And of course, there are reasons why people are illness happens. There are reasons why car crashes happens. There are reasons why tragedy happens. And we can look at the Gemara that talks about the Rikti Ladder. We can look at the Rambam that talks about naturalistic reasons. And we can say, yeah, we live, we are matter. We live in a universe of matter and things happen. Matter decays, things happen. And at the same time, perhaps we can say that there is still a providential God that there is a God that can come. It doesn't have to be a closed explanation. It, has, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And in this sense, I think it 
the dissonance that, again, can we sit in that uncomfortable place? That, that's really my question, right? Does it have to be that we absolutely align with the naturalistic explanation? Or does it have to be that we absolutely align with the providential explanation? Is there a way that we can sit in that uncomfortable space between the two? Now, again, as human beings, we've said this from the beginning, our natural inclination is towards certainty, is towards closed answers, is towards sometimes blame and shame. And Rabbi Sachs, I think, actually brings us a beautiful explanation where to a degree, he really understands that part of the human call, and in fact, part of the divine call to humanity is to remain in that dissonance. Because when we are living in that dissonance, when the question is there, when we are constantly asking that question, what does that suffering mean for me? And again, here I go back and Yosef, I kept meaning to say this throughout when you were speaking, I kept forgetting, but I think it's super important. And we said it last time. And again, I'm going to emphasize it. When we talk about finding meaning in our suffering, or when we talk about the idea of not the why, but the what, we are always addressing the single human person who has gone through the suffering. I, as you said, you can't come and offer, say, the Gemara says this, but only when the person's ready to hear it. I cannot impose meaning on someone else's suffering. The person who can, the only person who can impose meaning on suffering is the person who has been through the suffering. If I've watched somebody suffer, I can create meaning for myself out of that, but I can't necessarily create meaning for that person. Okay. And the Rabbi Sachs comes and, and he really um, grapples with this idea of distance. And in his book, Radical Then, Radical Now, he begins the book by asking this exact question. And he talks about the idea and, and coming up, we're coming up to this Pasha of Leklaka very shortly. He create he asks this idea of why was Avraham chosen? And he brings in this beautiful midrash of the birad doleket, of the bird, well, he, he translates it as the castle that's aflame, right? Some people say it's a, it's a, it's a castle that's a light, um, that lights up, but he understands it as a castle that's on fire. And he says, Abraham in the, in the Midrash, Abraham passes that castle and it's a flame. And he asks, where's the owner of that castle? Why is he not putting the flames out? Meaning the world, the evil, the suffering, the terrible destruction that's happening in the world, why is someone not doing something about it? And this is a question we ask day in, day out. Where is the owner of the world? Where's God? Why is he not stopping, stopping all this terrible suffering and evil that's happening? And the answer comes by way of somebody, the owner that sits in the flames and he's at the top of the building and he turns and he says, I'm here. And that's where the Midrash ends, that the owner turns from the top of the building and says, I'm here, right? How is that an answer? And again, to me, the, 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 the um, uh, uh, Rabbi Sachs doesn't really go into this, but I think it really, again, segues into what we've been speaking about is that there's no answer, right? When Abraham asked the answer, why is the castle of flame? Why is there tragedy in the world? Why are we living in such a destructive universe? The answer of God is I'm here, meaning the providence, he's still there right? 
It's not that Rambam's nat- He's still there, but there are indeed flames. Exactly. And it's not that Rambam's naturalistic explanation can't work with providence. This is the way I see it. I think it still can work with the providential view of reality. It's just that we don't have to, we're not children that's expecting God to come down and save us, right? That at the end of the day, we live in a world, we're created for matter, we're created in a world that has natural cause and effect. Let's take responsibility for ourselves. Let's ask ourselves, what can we do to prevent the next tragedy, to prevent the next rickety ladder, to prevent the next Miron, to prevent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We can bring in a million different examples. And, and that's exactly what Rabbi Sachs is, is saying here. And I'm going to, Yosef, I'm going to read Rabbi Sachs, just a very small um, extract um, of what he says. He says like this, he says, Judaism begins not in wonder that the world is but in protest that the world is not as it ought to be. It is that cry, that sacred discontent, that Avraham's journey begins. The easy answer would be to deny the reality of either God or evil. Then the contradiction would disappear and we could live at peace with the world. But to be a Jew is to have the courage to refuse easy answers and to reject either consolation or despair. God exists, therefore life has a purpose. Evil exists, therefore we have not yet achieved that purpose. For Judaism, faith is cognitive dissonance, the discord between the world that is and the world as it ought to be. That tension has been the energizing spring of Jewish life from Avraham until today. I think what Rabbi Sachs says here is, is beautiful because in a sense, it brings together what we've been talking about in terms of all the various explanations that we saw in the Gemara, all the responses that we saw and the Rambam's naturalistic view of suffering and evil. And it tells us that Dafka, the world as we see it, as it is, is meant to be that way. It doesn't mean that God doesn't exist and it doesn't mean that God isn't involved. And it doesn't mean that we can't access God from as, as a personal God on the contrary. It just means that God is calling out to us. He's saying, I'm here. I'm with you in the flames. I'm suffering. I'm here. But I'm giving, I'm handing you the baton to say, hold on a minute. This is your world. I need you to work with me in covenantal relationship and for you to take responsibility for the world in which you live. As you said, yourself, for you to take responsibility perhaps for your health, for the health of others, for healing not to blame, not as a means of blaming, but as a means of stepping up. I, I want to go back to the image you brought before that were of children and parents, right? That if you, you said it's not, it's not God's job to swoop in and save us, right? We're not, we're not in that kind of relationship with God. And I think that that's a really central piece here because for somebody who is living with a perspective as God as a father, which is understandable since it's so central to our liturgy and many other places, um, it, and I, when I think of that image and the midrash that you brought in from Brishit Rabbah about the the castle in flames, it kind of presents God as it presents us in in almost like a abusive relationship with God. Meaning, if if God is a parent, I'm taking the metaphor to the end. Okay, if God is a parent, um, and He's watching, you know, the house be in flames and the children are in it and they're suffering. That's not an image of of parent of a parent child relationship that most of us would think is healthy. 
Um, and therefore, I want to call upon the metaphor and say that the metaphor probably needs shifting. And that if we only look at God as a parent, then we look at him helpless and we say, why, why are you letting the world be like this? But if we look at God as a partner in a covenantal relationship, and this is why this metaphor speaks to me much more of God, we're in a breath with God. We have a relationship. It's He's our spouse, uh, as we see also many places in, in Navi, that it it's not that God isn't saving us. It's that, as exactly Rabbi Sachs is saying here, that we have to pick up the baton and we have to do our part as well. But it sounds almost like semantics, but I think it's much deeper than semantics because I think that when someone is relating to God as a parent, we look up to the sky and we say, why, how, how could you do that? And also, how could you let me be here? How could you let me be here and be like that? Whereas if you look at God as a partner, it's, it's a different, it's a different nature of a relationship. And therefore you don't look at God and say, I'm putting out my hand, save me. Look, sometimes our partners do need to save their spouses, but then, but then the relationship needs to undergo change to make sure that it's, it's back on equal footing. And I don't know. I, I'm just struggling with that because when you say, when we have this image of God, you know, he's burning in the flames and I say, so what do you mean? What does that mean? That's, that's a, that's a, a horrific way to to relate to your child. So, Yosefa, I wanted to bring in here, and I think it's super important that you've you've addressed this because I think I still think that we can. Firstly, the the notion, as you said, of God as a, a father comes up in liturgy in Jewish liturgy and many other places. Um, in a lot of biblical exegesis, we see it, and a lot of midrashic literature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think. We don't have to let go of that. And I'll t- explain why I think that way, because even in that midrash of God in the flames, and by the way, that is not the only place we see it. We see it in many other midrash when we're talking about the exile from the land, that God is being exiled with his people. God is suffering with his people in Echa Rabbah. It comes up again and again. And I think there's something profound in understanding God as a parent, but not perhaps as a parent of a young child, right? Maybe in the biblical, if we look at the biblical image of God as the father who's coming to save us, take us out of Mitzrayim, who's saving us from, from the Egyptians and all the various times that he comes again, swoops down, save us, saves us miraculously. But ultimately, even throughout Tanakh, God slowly disappears. If we look at the book of Estel, as opposed to at the beginning of Sefer Bereshit, God is absent, right? Ultimately, the redemption in the book of, of Megillah Esther comes from the hands of man or woman, man, whoever it is, right, of human beings. God has ultimately, in a, in a metaphorical sense, has disappeared. Now, does that mean that God isn't near? No, on the contrary, God is still with us. He's still present. It's just that he understands, as we do as parents, right, that when a child grows up, you don't need to be hovering over and being a helicopter parent anymore. In fact, it would be extremely abusive. And here I'm going to take your your language and turn it on itself. It would be abusive and perhaps very, very psychologically unsound and unhealthy for a helicopter parent to come in and save a 40-year-old child every time they felt that that child was in danger, Okay. In, in a sense, that's the way I see it. I see that humanity and the Jewish people in particular has, ha, ha, has grown up over the periods. And in this era where God is far more absent, absent on a metaphorical level, again, I believe that in many ways, God is actually far more present, right? In the same dynamic of a parent and a child, when, you're, when the child is much younger, there's no real deep relationship between the child and the, and the parent. Whereas there's a much more kind of savior relationship 
between the parent child. But when the child has grown up and the child is in his 40s and 50s, and perhaps even the child becomes a parent themselves, the relationship between the parent and the child is much deeper. It's much closer, even though physically, geographically, they may not be. Right. For me and you, Yosefa, our fathers are not alive anymore. Does that mean we don't feel their presence? On the contrary, we feel their presence day in, day out, perhaps even more so than they were when they were alive. And I think that that imagery to me is what speaks to me. We are living in a world whereby, yes, the responsibility has become us. We have to carry God's yoke on our shoulders. Right. That's our job. Does it mean God's not present? No. Does it mean I can't access him? No, it's just different. It's different to what it used to be. You know, there's a a brilliant book by someone called Susan Nyman. I I can't remember if I uh, quoted her in the first podcast. I'm not sure I did. But Susan Nyman, and she's a, a Jewish, she's actually a Jewish philosopher, not, not, not religious, she, but she um, speaks a lot. She philosophizes a lot about the problem of evil. And she has a book that's called Why Grow Up? And the entire book is based on the premise that One of the ways in which we grow up is the way in which we grapple with the problem of evil. In other words, the way in which we grapple with our expectations of how we want the world to be and how the world actually is. And she says that a grown up person is somebody who understands that the way the world is, is not always the way that the world is meant to be. And she gives this metaphor of the child that comes back, not not a metaphor, an example. She says the first time a child faces the problem of evil is when they come back and the and the uh, teacher has not, um, did I mention this last podcast? I can't remember whether the teacher has not given the child the grade that they wanted or was unfair to the child. And the, the child complains to the parents, it's not fair, it's not fair. And she said, That's the first example that the child is faced exactly with this dissonance of the world as it is the, ch- parent, the, the teacher's meant to be fair, teacher's meant to be just. And when the teacher isn't, how does the child manage that those feelings, those sentiments, those disappointments of what I believe should be and what actually is. And she says all of our life, in a way, is growth or growing through um, the grappling with that dissonance. And, and, and that's the way I see it in terms of this Midrash and what Rabbi Sachs is telling us here, um, that really um, part of the dynamic of our covenantal relationship with Hashem, with God, is that we need to grow up and we need to take responsibility. And I think in a way, that's also what the Rambam is saying to us here. Look at yourselves. Don't always go and blame God or, or blame, you know, sin and punishment, that kind of paradigm. But let's have a look at where we can take more responsibility for our lives. And if I can just ask one more question before we close today's episode, based on what we've seen today, where are we placing, where, where, where's the closeness with God coming in? Is the, clo- the closeness with God is in the fact that we're in this covenantal relationship and we're taking responsibility, but where, so then where do we see, where do we see God in, in that, in those pictures? Um, we've slightly pushed away from the more classic answers, right, of the was thinking of Avodah Zarah, was, uh, you know, Schar Mitzvah is only on the way there, but not on the way back, or we've kind of, we've pushed away from those, yeah. um, both of us, and we've gone more into this, into this other realm that we can't explain, explain things naturally, but it doesn't negate 
a covenantal relationship with God, and even more so, I think it demands of us, as we're saying, to have an, an adult relationship with God, with adult expectations of, of God and His role in this world and how much He intervenes. So I just want to end with this question of, where's the closeness for those seeking it out? So again, I, I, for me or Seth, personally, I go back to that paradigm that I spoke about, which is this, and I still believe that we can tap into and use the paradigm of parent-child relationship. I just think that it needs to grow up. Um, and we need to recognize that at this stage in history, the covenantal relationship between man and God is not what it was at the beginning of the biblical era. Um, and in a sense, as human beings, we've grown up. Um, there's been over the last even 20 years, Yosefa, and I'm sure you agree with me because I know we've had these discussions together. There's been a huge expansion of consciousness, not just religious consciousness, which I think has also expanded, but human consciousness has expanded on a, on a, on a huge scale um, in terms of our awareness of our environment, our awareness of our commitment and our responsibility to the environment, to others, to ourselves, to holistic healing. All the various things that we've seen um, proliferated in the last two decades, three decades, um, to me, that's part of this growing up um, in the sense of taking responsibility for our own healing, for global healing, for healing the planet um, and for healing ourselves. And I think that where do I find God in that? I still believe that just because I don't put it this way, okay? Maybe, maybe this is the way that we can finish it. Just because God doesn't come down and save me, just because God doesn't come down and heal me the second that something happens to me, does not negate the close relationship or me accessing a relationship with him. Do I need some, and, and again, this is the question I'm going to leave it on, in order for me to feel close to God, in the same way that perhaps I feel close to a parent, do I need that parent to offer me um, miraculous answers, miraculous healing, miraculous um, um, response to my suffering, to, my, to, to evil, to things that are happening to me? Or do I need that parent or God to be there with me in that space? to sit with me in that space. And to me, that's exactly what the Midrash is saying. The Midrash is saying when he says that God responds from within the suffering, within the flames, within the evil, within the burning castle, God is with me in that space. When we are three years old and we come to I, our parents. I want to say that it's like a parent. Yeah. When their child is going through something difficult, exactly, often are even are pain more. <laughs> Which again, I don't know how you how you measure it, but that's the human experience says this that the parent is pain more than the child themselves. A hundred percent. I wanted to say it's exactly what I was going to say. When a three year old comes and they've cut their finger, you know, you'll 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 or the three year old comes and they've got a problem with one of their friends or whatever, you'll you'll solve that problem in the same way that God did very early on in the biblical times. But when you're 15, you're 18, you're 20, your 40-year-old child comes, and honestly, you can't solve that problem for them. You hope that you've given them the tools. You hope you've given them the ability to solve those problems. And you know what? When it's illness, the only thing you can do is sit with them, is be with them, is extend your hand and your love to that person, and for them to know that you're there. 
for them the entire time. That to me is the paradigm of God in my suffering. And maybe that won't work for everybody. Maybe somebody will say that's not enough. If God is all powerful, all knowing, all loving, et cetera, et cetera, then he'll take away my suffering. Then he'll obliterate the suffering that exists on the, on the earth. I, I don't have an answer for that, Yosefa. I don't think anyone has an answer for that. But I think for us, and again, we've been speaking, and, and here I want to go back to the metaphor I began the podcast with, climbing up that mountain. When we're in the valley and we want to know how do I climb the second mountain, that, that metaphor I gave with David Brooks, I think the way that I see God, the way that I tap in to the presence of God for me in that valley is that I tap into God as a means of holding my hands and walking up that second mountain with me. Not as someone who's going to swoop down and bring a helicopter and take me to the top. And, and I think for me, that's, that's really what it is. And again, that's not going to work. I'm, I, again, what we're saying here is we're offering responses. I'm not saying that the way that I see it is going to work for everybody else. But, but I really, I, for me, that's, that's a metaphor that really, really touches me on a very deep level because I really believe that as human beings, we have grown up. I want to end with one additional idea since these podcasts are going to be coming out uh, as we're reading Safer Bray Sheet uh, and, uh, and with this, we'll close. We have a general question um, that Rashi asks in the beginning of his commentary on the Torah, which is why do we start the Torah with a book of stories about family, which between you and I, a lot of dysfunctional family. <laughs> uh, and, and so wh- why do we start there? Why not start with mitzvot? Why not start with sexual morality? But no, we start with, with stories of family. There's also you know, magnificent, magnificent stories of revelation also in there as well. Um, but why, why start with family? And I, I just want to end with this point because it's come through so clearly in this episode, even though this isn't something I even think that we thought we were going to go and speak about. But, uh, Rabbi Sachs says also to quote him twice in one episode, which is that our blueprint, our spiritual blueprint in this world first is written with our family, meaning well before anybody starts exploring their relationship with God or has any sort of deep relationship with anything uh, ethereal or, or larger than, we first meet our family and we function in a family structure. And so Rabbi Sachs says that before we can get to the whole mitzvah observance piece, First, we have to talk about family because that's where everybody exists first. And that, and only later will we realize that our strongest relationships for how we can have a relationship with God will be drawn from our relationships with our family members, with spouses, with, um, with parents. And, and so, you know, a human first meets family. And therefore, you have to start there in the Torah before you can talk about, about God and, and certainly about nation building, right? A nation can only be built up of families that are built properly. And so in Sefer Breshi, we learn essentially by trial and error, right? We see a lot of errors that are made uh, throughout Sefer Breshi, and, and we're supposed to learn from those within our own family. The dynamics are inescapable. Uh, every family will have sibling rivalry. Every family will have um, this you know, issues between parents. Um, but that is where we must start because that is where, where humans begin. And so I want to end today's episode um, with with saying that, well, we're speaking in metaphor because as humans, we that's the language we have, right? We only have metaphors to speak about these ideas. Uh, and I think that the metaphors, though, give us a really 
deep window into what people are feeling and experiencing. Uh, and the metaphors come because that's the only language we have. But I think that what we've spoken today about the dynamic between a parent-child metaphor and a spousal metaphor for our relationship with God, I think that both of them offer a prism uh, that that can speak to different people. Uh, and it also, I think, very much depends on their own experiences of their perhaps their marriages or the marriages that they've experienced and also their parent-child relationships. So we're going to end for today. Next episode will be focusing on on the Holocaust uh, and the and the philosophical questions that that event has posed. We'll see you there. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.